brothers and sisters, it's good to see you, see you all this, this morning. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. We're starting chapter 2 uh, this morning. We're going to begin reading, of course, in verse 1 in just, in just a moment. Last week, Peter addresses the accusations of false teachers against his preaching and against his teaching, saying that what he was preaching, what he was teaching was, was just myths and, and fairy tales, in particular about the second coming of Christ. And so Peter gives us eyewitness testimony through his eyewitness of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, saying that the power and Glory and honor that was revealed there will be the same honor and glory that is prefiguring Christ when he comes back in his second coming and that he was an eyewitness to those things, to the future coming of Christ and power. He says that the apostolic witness here is, is valuable. It's authoritative. It's an authoritative source to the things that the apostles have, have taught that they were true. But Peter goes on to say there in verse 19, more importantly, he says, but we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to, the, as to a lamp shining in the dark places until the day of dawn and the morning star arises in your hearts. I don't think we could read that verse enough. We have the word of God. We have the word of God. It is not something that man has made up. It is not something that Peter has made up or the prophets have made up. It wasn't something that was just interpreted in the minds of man nor by the will of man. But as Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If God's word then is our only source of revelation... And if God's word is our only source of authority as followers of God, as the church, then we have God's word. He's given it to us. Then we must be able and will be able to recognize that not all prophets and teachers are from God. I think that's what he's saying to us in, this, in chapter 1 there as we get to chapter 2. He's showing to us that this, they are false teachers and there are real teachers. And God's word recognizes and shows us which is which. Look to 2 Peter chapter 2 and we'll begin reading in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed... They will exploit you with false words. They will, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, then he, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued the righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, and he saw that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. It should be then very obvious, as we've kind of been building up to this over the last couple weeks, four weeks or so, Now we are hearing a direct addressing or dress downing of false teachers to let there be no doubt that this is some of the harshest words in the New Testament against false teachers, maybe Paul and Galatians and the emasculations of themselves could be harshest, harsher. But Peter goes right after them, and he leaves absolutely no wiggle room that the church is to tolerate or to have false teachers within them. They should not exist at all within the church. There should be no doubt to the church that false teachers are enemies to them. Paul calls them wolves. And wolves should never be allowed to play with sheep. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that not just three decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church is already being infiltrated by false teachers. Now, we're, we're not talking about outsiders in the world who, have, who, are, who are persecuting the church from the outside. We've already talked about that. That's 1 Peter. We've already talked about those. Those are real, and they're there, and they're enduring through that. But here, the massive problem in 2 Peter is false teachers that are coming into the church. They're coming into the church, and they are preaching, in particular here, a very licentious gospel which isn't a gospel at all. False teachers within the church are more dangerous, I believe, than to the outsiders because they look like us. They act like us. They talk like us. They speak like us. They know all the lingo. They know all the traditions. They themselves have made professions of faith and have been baptized. And like I said, it's unfortunate. 
But even in Peter's day, it wasn't, this wasn't a new problem. Unfortunately, infiltrators have been leading people astray to abandon the faith all the way from the beginning. We, we read that in, in Jeremiah 23, and that's only like the middle of the New Old Testament. They've been speaking about them ever since, before. That false prophets have come in to lead God's people away. But even all the way to the very, very beginning, the very first false teacher who infiltrated God's people, Satan himself in the garden. He didn't come with books and banners and a big t-shirt and sign that says, I'm Satan, you should not believe me. But he came very subtly. He came very subtly and he came with questions. He came as an animal from the garden, a serpent from the garden, a reptile in the garden, like he belonged. Did God really say, you should not eat of the tree in the garden? You will surely not die. He slightly changes what? He changes what God had said. He takes just a little bit, and he skews it just a little bit to make that question, to bring that doubt, to deny God's word, to distort God's word, to bring on a full rejection of God's word. The same tactic of the evil one continued throughout Israel with false prophets. And we see his same tactic with false teachers in the New Testament, and the same same tactic continues today with, with false teachers. And we don't have enough time to even come close to talk about every form of false teaching or false teachers. But the idea is always the same. Change the gospel. Change God's word. Make it better in the eyes of man. Make it a little softer. Make it a little palpable and sweet. Make it more lovely in the eyes of an ever-changing culture. Make it acceptable. Make it tolerant. But with any change, as we know from God's word, that with any change, the gospel is no longer the gospel, but rather it becomes a false gospel. And there have been teachers and false prophets for centuries who have been trying to do these very same things. And yet, I, I'm still mystified. I'm still just mystified. Why would anyone want to change such glorious news? Why would anyone want to, to change or substitute the greatest news of all time, the greatest truth of all time, the greatest gift of all time, the gift of God's grace into something so much lesser. Just to say that sin is not real or the virgin birth is only a myth, the second coming isn't coming, that man is getting better, the resurrection really didn't happen. Substitutionary atonement is reprehensible. But the gospel is just 
a metaphor and a symbolic for man to know how to be good and right and just toward one another. Or that the gospel is, is about God blessing you and giving you good gifts of wealth and prosperity here in this life. That right doctrine really doesn't matter. Only right relationship. How stupid of a saying. I can speak that way because Peter is speaking that way. <laughs> How does that even come close to comparing to God's sovereign grace or to his forgiveness or to his real love that's been manifested in the cross of Christ or the real freedom that we get from sin and from death, the gift of the Holy Spirit that is given to every one of his believers or every one of his followers, every one of his children eternal life in Christ, the future resurrection from the dead with the new, new body, eternity in the heavens and new earth, a loving and holy sovereign God, the support and love of the body of Christ. And the answer to that question is it doesn't even come close to comparing. It's the worst trade in the universe. And yet even more today, false teachers are flourishing within, quote unquote, the church. So in light of this passage, as most of y'all know if you read my email, that I've titled this sermon, False Teachers Have an Expiration Date. Like the milk in the back of your refrigerator, the carton may look fine, but only from the inside can you tell if it's expired. And if you've tasted the real thing, instantly you will know that that milk has gone. False teachers may look good. They may sound good. They may be slick. They may be smart. They may be very intelligent. And they may feed people what tastes good to them. But God's word is true. And it tells us that they too will soon expire. The first thing that I want you to see from our passage this morning is that we need to be aware. Not beware, that too probably, but be aware. To be aware of false teachers. To be aware of false teachers and their teaching so that when we hear it, the little red flags go up and we're able to call it like we see it or like we hear it. Being civil, being humble, Treating people with dignity, having compassion is one thing, but being passive and accommodating is another. Jesus is compassionate. He treated even his own enemies with dignity and with compassion in a lot of charity. He prayed for them. For the most part, Jesus was even, he was even civil, except for maybe that one point in time where he flipped over tables and did that in a very righteous way. But Jesus was never passive in speaking and telling the truth. He never accommodated evil or lies. He casted out lies and he spoke boldly to them to the point where crowds were about to kill him 
like on like 10 different occasions, but it wasn't his time yet. So we must never be passive in the truth. Speak humbly. Treat people with compassion and dignity. Be civil. But we must never fear man over God, boldly confronting false teaching in the church. And the reason is, is because that's what Peter is doing here, boldly confronting false teaching within the church to be aware of it in order to know what the false teaching is and how to spot it, he tells us. In these first three verses, that's exactly what he's doing. And again, connecting with the previous passage, again, not all prophets are from God. And in the church, there will be teachers that will still try to infiltrate the church and teach uh, false doctrine, false gospels, and destructive heresies. One of the first things Peter shows us here is he shows us the tactics of false teachers. The tactics of false teachers there in verse 1. He says, false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. How will they bring in their teaching? They will do it secretly. They will do it deceptively. They will do it in hiding. They will keep it hidden. So, for example, in an elder interview, they will probably not disclose that they really don't believe all of the Bible that there are some stories that for even for them are too hard to believe, that maybe the miracles really didn't happen. They won't admit it openly. And I would dare to say that most of them deceptively will still agree to a statement of faith, even like ours, just to infiltrate. They will even sign it. They will lie. You see, this is how... In almost every instance throughout church history, this is how false teachers have gained entrance, have weaseled and wiggled and slithered their ways into Christian institutions such as the church and seminaries and so forth. They've gained access and influence by deception. And deception is always lies. No matter what a politician says. It's always a lie. Again, they're, they're not going to come in wearing the t-shirt that says, Joel Olstein is my homeboy. They're not going to do that. No, it's, it's about making everyone believe that they're just like them. That they're supposed to be there. And then at the, the right moment, at the right place, with the right people, with the right questions and the right phrases, they bring doubt. Provoking passions and division among the body of Christ. And to the unsuspecting, to the immature, their ideas will sound Christian because they're quoting scripture. How can it not be Christian if, you, if you're quoting some scripture here? It'll sound noble. It'll sound loving. And even to some, some will say, this is wise. It's wise for me to ask questions about the Bible and to question it. It's wise for me to question the deity of Christ. It's wise for me to question the real bodily resurrection of Christ. It's wise for me to question biblical sexuality in light of the whole culture going the other direction. Maybe we're the wrong ones here. It's wise for me to question the sanctity of human life. And that's just to name a few. False teachers' tactics are deception. And they deceive with very enticing bait. 
verse 2, I think says very unfortunately. It says many will follow their sensuality. And unfortunately, because it says many, many will follow. And unfortunately, we have historical evidence of such apostasy taking place within churches, denominations, associations, organizations that just completely fall away as apostate. And Peter identifies the bait. He says it's sensuality. Throughout the New Testament, this word refers to sexual sin and depravity. This encompasses fornication. It it brings about ideas then of pornography and adultery and homosexuality and homosexual lifestyles. What particular sin Peter is specifically referring to, we we really do not know, but I don't think it matters. I think he's talking about all of these things because these false teachers who have infiltrated the church are attracting people with a very licentious lifestyle. And unfortunately, there are all too many who gladly believe and want to believe and want to follow their example. And why not? If there is no judgment, if God's word really isn't God's word, then sure, continue in sin that grace may abound. Why not? Does it really make us wonder then how some pastors and seminary professors and church leaders who actually from the pulpit will promote sinful, depraved lifestyles? Because it's enticing, baby. People want it. They want what feels good to the flesh. We want what feels good to the flesh. And so we'll put things in our lives to justify it. The bait is to entice the flesh. To say, you can have God and you can have your sin at the same time. What tactic, huh? The second, I want you to see the motives of the false teacher. In verse 3, he says, it's in their greed they will exploit you with false words. So what's the motive? It's greed. It's greed. It's greed for money. It's greed for worldly possessions. It's greed for, for fame. It's greed for popularity. Even if it's just within a small group of people, they desire to be popular, to feed the ego. These are not teachers who are impartially and sacrificially seeking to help others. For them, it's to exploit them, to exploit others with false words, to take advantage, to use, to abuse, to rob people without even knowing that they've been, they've been robbed. They promise life, yet spoon-feed them death. They're like those who, uh, back in the days, would... Uh, I guess it probably still exists today. Uh, people who would travel from town to town snelling, selling snake oils and, and medical quackery gadgets to try to help cure people of certain diseases and particular ailments. They were like the shady used car salesmen selling shiny cars that had billions of miles on them at crazy interest rates. Intentionally, taking advantage of someone 
who is in real need. Television, and now, particularly the internet, is filled with these kinds of snakes. Hawking half-truth of the gospel at best, promising people the world, promising them health and wealth and prosperity, popularity, sexual freedom. And many people have bought the con, hook, line, and sinker. And that they have given everything then to be blessed. This is a really sad situation. If you've ever had a family member or a friend who was sucked into those promises of healing or the promises of worldly possessions, if they just send a little bit more, you would know how sad it really is. It is a sad sight because it's just false words so that they can get more. Third, I want you to see the outcome of these teachings. One of the outcomes we just mentioned is the financial, financial loss of people that they give to these charlatans. But Peter cared more for these Christians than just about their money. Back to verse 1, he says the outcome of their heresies, right? Their heresies, their false teaching. Anything that, that the Bible does not teach or excuse what the Bible teaches is called a heresy. And what does these heresies do? He says in verse 1, it brings about destruction, destructive heresies. Now, this kind of destruction is not like saying you have to break a few eggs if you're going to make a cake. No, this is the kind of destruction that is we have to destroy the whole kitchen with sledgehammers so no one can have cake. Heresy, false teaching is destructive. It destroys. It never builds up. It never restores. It never renews. It never makes anything or anyone better. For example, there are thousands of beautiful, stunning, gorgeous church buildings throughout the United States, throughout Canada, and throughout Europe with seating for hundreds and even thousands of people. And for many congregations, many of those congregations and, and many of those denominations that represented those congregations, they have completely given themselves full tilt into heresy. And do you think that that has made them better? They think so. They think that it's made them better. But in fact, the reality is, is that most of those buildings are just sitting empty. And that they are dilapidated even this morning. There's nobody there or just maybe a handful. But yet at one time, they were probably full of hundreds and, and even thousands of people vibrant with the gospel and vibrant with, with singing. So what has heresy done? Like the one preached in the garden it only has brought destruction. It has only brought sin. It has only brought decay and, de and death. Just a little bit of leaven can leaven the whole bunch. Another outcome that we see here is that, in verse 1, is that there is a denial of the master who bought them. 
The expression that false teachers were part of the church, Peter addresses here, he says that they profess or that they profess faith in Christ maybe at one time, and that one time they may have been loyal to Jesus, but now they deny the Lord. So in the eyes of others and even their own, they believed that they had been bought by the Lord, but in the end they had just been living a lie and really have never accepted the lordship of Christ that he truly is their master. Their heresy proves they were never part of the family of God in the first place. The outcome of their, of, of their false teaching reveals that they are really not in Christ at all. With us, but not really of us. And that is why the church must address false teaching and false teachers when it arises. And lastly, one of the outcomes I believe is very sad is that false teachers and false gospels are a stain on the church and a reproach to Christ, to say it best. Peter says, is a blasphemy. If you know anything about the scriptures, blasphemy is not a good place to be. We see clearly in verse 2, when the supposed, um, well, verse 2, because of them, the way of truth is blasphemed. A couple years back when a supposed Christian seminary led students to offer a prayer of forgiveness to plants, yeah, you heard me correctly, at that point, Christianity has completely left the building a long time ago. And yet, they still claim to be Christian. They still claim to be some semblance of Christianity. That kind of practice and and frankly, for their teaching for the previous 150 years beforehand, it's just blasphemy. And it is a stain upon the Christianity, a reproach to Christ. Lastly, Peter shows us what all false teachers forget. He tells us that they all forget what they deny, and that is God. They forget the sovereign, righteous, holy, omnipotent, omniscient, creator of all. They forget Yahweh God. They forget the, the great I am who is, who is, who he has said he is, and that he is the God that will not be mocked. And you look to the second half of verse 3, they've clearly forgotten. Because it says their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Their condemnation will come. And it has been planned for them uh, from a, for a long time. And who has planned it? The righteous. Whose righteousness is it according to? God. God has planned it, and it's God's righteousness. And it says there that he is not idle. Or is he asleep, or is he weak, or he cannot see or, or even know what they are doing? He has not forgotten, but they have. They've denied it. They forgot the one thing, and the most important thing, and that is God. And because of that, it's not going to go well for them. So church, in this first point, we must be aware that there are false teachers out there. And that these are their tactics and these are their motives. 
And these are their outcome. And so we must be aware and be careful and call it out and be discerning when we see it and when we hear it. Moving on now to the second point. The second thing we see from this passage is that false teachers will have their end. And this is where I get the sermon title because I think quite clearly that false teachers have an expiration date, or to put it another way, judgment for them is certain. And I think this is the main point of the passage. It's right there in the heart of the text. Coming off of verse 3, where condemnation is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep, Peter illustrates that from verse in verses 4 through 8. And he gives us very sure evidences that God has judged the wicked in the scriptures throughout history. He goes right to the scriptures. And he says, this is what you have forgotten. This is what God has done in the past. And this is what he is going to do in the future. The first piece of evidence, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committing them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Now we can, we can be almost certain that Peter, like he said in, in 1 Peter, that he is referring to the sinful angels of Genesis 6, 1-4. These angels who had sexual relations with women on earth, which was a direct rebellion against God, and therefore God judged them and, and cast them into hell with chains of gloomy darkness awaiting their judgment. Now that's certainly that passage, Genesis 6, and even somewhat of what Peter is saying here, leaves us with many questions about these angels. What was their punishment? What exactly was it wrong? What did they do? What is all these things? What are the chains? What does it mean they're going to be judged later? All of these things, we're left with a lot of these questions. However, even though there's so many questions, we should not miss the main point. And the main point is, is that if great and powerful angels cannot escape God's righteous judgments, then how much less will weak men like false teachers have? And by using this example, as descriptive as it is, casting them into hell, in chains, judgment, that is to help us understand that God will certainly bring his judgment down. And that judgment is severe when you sin against a holy God. The second example, he continues right along in Genesis 6 by recalling the, the rampant wickedness, rebellion against God in the ancient world. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. When we hear Noah, we, we know instantly that he's speaking about Noah in the, in the flood. Noah's ark, right? Noah and the Arky, Arky, right? We're familiar with that. Is that VeggieTales? I can't remember. VeggieTales was at my time, so I don't know. It's Noah. But God, in the flood, was judging all of mankind and creation, literally destroying the face of the earth by a worldwide flood. And the words here are very striking to us because it wasn't just the angels that he did not spare, which means God's 
judgment was not metaphorical. It's not symbolic, but it was reality. But it also means that God in these instances to wicked mankind did not show any mercy. Did not. God did not spare the wicked world from his righteous, holy wrath. What we must understand here once again is that God is going to judge the world in the same way, in the same things. That he will judge ungodliness. And yet, Peter tucks right in here, and we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but he tucks right in that yet even though there's, there's this massive judgment that he didn't spare the, the ungodly, we see still God's glory through salvation, through judgment. God judged the wicked, but he also preserved Noah, and he preserved his family in the ark. Consider then, in this example, the measures of God's judgment of sin. The measures of God's judgment of sin. The whole catechismic worldwide flood. But then consider the measures of God's mercy in preserving Noah and his family for his glory. The last example takes us to an even darker place. Staying in Genesis, we hear of the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 6, he says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction by making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Those wicked cities of sin that we know throughout history, they're, they're kind of like symbols, emblems of wickedness and depravity and rebellion and some of the worst ways. Their sin, their sin within the Bible was is almost second to none in the scriptures, right? I mean, we go all the way to Sodom and Gomorrah to know these are like the worst of the worst. Maybe Nineveh was pretty bad too, but these guys were bad. So bad, it's not even PG-13. You want to read it? Go to Genesis 18 through 19. But let us not think that mankind in its outright, proud, boasting, rebellion, perverse, sinful, wicked, iniquity-filled, transgression-filled abominations that in our time we have not outdone Sodom and Gomorrah vastly. That humbles me just thinking of it. And God in his righteous wrath, he leveled those cities. He leveled those cities to the ground. And look at the description. Heaps of ashes. These cities became ash heaps of history. It says they were to extinction. I mean, think about it. extinction. That's nothing left, right? We think of animals and, and, and things that go extinct. There's no more left on the earth. 
or dinosaurs, whatever. These are people. And God in his righteous right, he leveled that city. Multiple nuclear weapons going off in that, those cities, destroying them. I don't know if that's what he did, but to extinction, wiped off the face of the earth because of their wickedness and sin and ungodliness. And Peter says that they are set apart now for us as an example of what's coming to the ungodly. These three examples are intentionally used I think because of the nature of the sin of all three. Because the same enticing motive of sensuality of false teachers is what's being judged. The ungodliness in these examples were judged. But like Noah, God preserved his people. In verse 7, he says, And if he rescued righteous Lot. That's kind of a confusing statement a little bit if you know Genesis at all. We'll talk a little bit about it in a second. But what's very clear from these three examples, that in biblical history, God is going to judge the wicked. And that includes false teachers that are intentionally destroying the church from within and bringing disrepute upon the gospel and upon Christ and the church so this is to leave no doubt in the minds of Christians that their end is certain, that it's destructive, that their end will be harsh, but it will be just, and it will be holy, and it will be righteous. But also God will rescue the righteous. Hopefully the milk in your refrigerator has a printed expiration date that tells you when to trash it, and not to pour it in your cereal or your coffee or anything else. Hopefully it has an expiration date. We don't have an expiration date of them, but one thing's for sure is there is one. God knows, and even though we may not know when that expiration is coming, let that not confuse us or make us believe that God is not going to judge them at all, because he will. And the reason is because God will not be mocked, and he will judge all the ungodly. Lastly, the sermon is not all about hellfire and brimstone, but there is some good news. There's some, there's some good news here, because it's not just about the end of the false teachers and their expiration date, but weaved right within these passages. We're going to talk about with Noah and with Lot, that weave right in these passages encouragement to the church. And we know that they're going to be judged, but however, we still live in a world where heresy has, became, has become mainline. Heresy has become mainline, and biblical Christianity has become now the heretics. And the church, the real church, is going to face the consequences of the mainline rejecting of orthodoxy. And if you're not on board with their revolution, and prepare to be canceled, prepare to be marginalized at best. So living in that, if we don't have this truth here, honestly, brothers and sisters, it would be hopeless. 
What could we really do to stand up against such a torrent of destruction? For example, how discouraging it has been to see Christian leaders who we have followed and who we have respected for years. And even to this day, we still appreciate in many ways for our own personal growth and maturity. And yet we have seen a, a slide of them into some, into some false teaching. That they should look to other sources to address the, the pressing issues of our day. That we need something else besides Scripture to help us understand what's really happening in culture and in the church and what's been happening throughout history. Putting the gospel and, and God's word in the back seat just for these times so that we can address issues such as race and diversity and politics and even sexuality. This has been very sad to observe. It's been very divisive too. And it's also been very painful. But no, how, no matter how discouraging it may be, we still have God's word that comforts us. And it encourages us even in the midst of seeming, seemingly the hopeless situations. And if you look at verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those that indulge in the lust of defiling passions, right, the sensuality, and despise authority, despise the authority of God's word, the authority of the church, the authority of Christ as Lord. In verse 9, he's bringing us back to those examples of how God preserved and rescued Noah and how he saved Noah and his family through the flood, but also to Lot. And how God rescued him from, from, uh, the wicked, uh, from the wicked and from his judgment. Lot was, as we see from this passage, what the description of Lot, that he was distressed. He was overwhelmed by all the sin that was around him. The, the, it was tormenting him. It was tormenting him even in, in some of the craziest decisions that he, someone has to make, that someone make, that Lot made. It was tormenting him in such a way that he would make those kinds of decisions. It's very interesting that, as I said earlier, that, that, that Peter would describe Lot as righteous. Because we would read Lot as kind of being foolish, not being very wise. Why, why would you, it's like, why would you move there? Lot, why would you take your family there? Why would Lot do this? But I guess in comparison to his hospitality, to strangers, and how Lot was so very different from everyone else, God still, God rescued Lot and his family from the destruction of Sodom. But yet what we see here is we see Lot, he, he wavered. Lot doubted as he lived literally with the enemy surrounding him in all of their lawless deeds on display, and literally have come to his doorstep. Brothers and sisters, does it not feel as if we are in the same place as Lot? Never before 
like never before, living in crazy, insane, wicked, sinful, disgusting, deviant, diabolical, false viewpoints where everyone's thoughts and opinions are propagated across the internet like wildfire. We now hear and see everything of every crazy person out there. Because of the platforms of social media and then other sources that pick them up and make them viral like wildfire. This truly has had its effect on culture. It has polarized us and it has turned us into different tribes like never before. Well, maybe back in the 1860s. But how has it affected you? Are we not feeling a little bit like Lot these days? I'm not going to use that example. But day after day, as Lot was bombarded, so were we, with insanity, lawlessness, rampant lawlessness. And here is the word of God addressing people, the church, right? Peter's addressing the church, giving this example of Lot who was wavering. Hey, church, who's wavering, and you want to believe these false truths. It may sound good. It may taste better going down, but it's a lie, and they're going to be judged. Their ungodliness is going to be judged. Your sensuality and ungodliness is going to be judged as well. But listen to this. Then verse 9, God knows how to rescue the righteous and the godly. And he's going to punish the unrighteous. Now, this doesn't mean that God is always going to protect us from death and we're never going to be immune to trials and that our church will never face false teaching or anything like that. That's, that's not what that means. But what it means is, is that the Lord is going to give us everything we need by his grace to face those trials day by day. And what we see here is that God is always faithful to protect his people, his elect, from apostasy, from walking away. And what's amazing here is Peter didn't use perfect men as his examples, did he? And so we should not assume that God only rescues the perfect the self-made, and the sinless. Noah and Lot weren't free from sin by any measure. But they also brought nothing to the table by which they would deserve to be rescued. God rescued them based upon his unmerited favor. His grace because of who he is and not because of who we are or what we can do. Noah and Lot, as imperfect as they were, what did they do? They believed God. They believed God's word. God said, judgment's coming, Noah, build an ark. Noah built an ark. God said, Lot, you better get out of there. And Lot believed and left. They followed God's instructions and therefore God's righteousness. They believed God's righteousness was given to them. This is a picture, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that encourages us because none of us deserve to be rescued from the righteous judgment of God, but rather God's grace 
And like them, we are saved by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from whom God, from God that depends on him. The ark that has brought us through judgment is Christ. The shield from the ashes of extinction is Christ's righteousness that has been imputed upon those who have faith in him. This passage is very clear for us, church, that we must be aware of false teachers and false teaching, what they do, what they say, what they are about. We must understand that they have an expiration. They, along with all the ungodly, will face God's righteous judgment. But for us, we can be encouraged that through Christ we have been rescued and will be rescued because of Christ. False teaching is everywhere. And sin is everywhere. Ungodliness is everywhere. And it can be discouraging. But yet this passage puts a spotlight on it. Not to hide sin from us, but to expose it to help us to have a deeper perspective and peace in our sovereign, loving, heavenly Father. And just as we sang this morning before the preaching, though with scornful wonder men see her sore and oppressed, that is the church, by schisms, divisions, rent asunder, by heresies, distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morning song. To that day we look forward to. But until that day we pray for discernment in the word. We pray for strength to stand firm on the gospel and to be humbly in it. And all God's people say,